This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. Welcome to another edition of the National Press Club Update One podcast. I'm podcast committee member Lincoln Smith, and with this conversation, we are joined by veteran journalist and historian Mr. David Satter, who speaks to us about the Ukraine invasion by Vladimir Putin. Welcome, David Satter. Glad to be here. David, from 1976 to 1982, Indeed, you were the Moscow correspondent of the Financial Times of London, moving on to be special correspondent on Soviet affairs for the Wall Street Journal. In sum, you have reported for more than four decades on Russian affairs. Does the Russian political leadership operate in the interest of the people or themselves? Oh, themselves, without any, without any doubt. First of all, a, a regime that comes to power by, by blowing up civilian apartment blocks and, bl- and starting a war uh, has an attitude toward the people that is absolutely uh, uh, a manipulative and instrumental. They are using the people for their own purposes. This is the nature of power in Russia. And we see it now with the, with the war in, in Ukraine. Uh, there's no conceivable objective that would justify the mass casualties that the Russians are uh, enduring right now. And it isn't just any Russians. It's young, innocent, teenage boys, many of them freshly recruited into the army from rural areas who have had their worldview exclusively uh, formed by state television uh, and are are in reality, rather innocent. So a regime that ruled in the interests of the people uh, would not organize uh, a television uh, campaign that based exclusively on lies and misinformation. This is a, a, a manipulative, vicious, uh, group that has little regard for the people and uses them for its own purposes as an instrument and nothing more. Let's get over to Vladimir Putin. Given that it is difficult to read the mind of someone from afar, can you share who Vladimir Putin is? What makes him tick? Well, I don't think there's a great mystery here. I mean, this goes we, this goes back to our previous uh, question about, uh, you know, do the Russian rulers rule on behalf of the people? Well, when Vladimir Putin was a local official in St. Petersburg, there was a program called Food for Oil. Uh, this, there was a risk of starvation in St. Petersburg. This was immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union. And the program was instituted in order to guarantee emergency food supplies for St. Petersburg. Uh, oil and other raw materials uh, were released from the state reserves. They were sent abroad to pay for food deliveries. Uh, Putin was in charge in St. Petersburg 
uh, the raw materials were sent abroad, they were paid for, the food was never delivered. The money was pocketed. Well, what kind of uh, concern for the people is, does that show? People are unaware in the West that Putin was being investigated on two criminal charges when Yeltsin uh, promoted him uh, to be prime minister. It was at that point that the charges were dropped. Obviously, Yeltsin felt that it, it did not disqualify him in any way that he was about to be charged with serious crimes. But in fact, the but here again we get back to your original question: is so what 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 was Yeltsin looking for? He wasn't looking for someone who would. Uh, rule in the interests of the people. He was looking for someone who would rule in his interests and would protect him and his corrupt family and his corrupt entourage. That's what he was looking for. That's what he got. So uh, the interests of the people in this situation are, are, are strictly uh, incidental to the, to the to the real goals of the regime. What are the reasons behind Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Well, we have to bear in mind here, and this is what, something that's very difficult for many Americans to understand, that uh, war for the Russian leadership is an instrument of internal policy. War is used in order to rally the population around the regime and make them forget the ways in which they're being misruled. And of course, it was a war that was responsible for Putin becoming president, the second Chechen war, because the bombing of those buildings, which were carried out by their own security services, were used as an excuse to start a war in which thousands of people were killed, including thousands of Russian soldiers. But that solidified Putin's hold on power. Putin is really up to his elbows in blood, if not, if not more. I mean, but so was Yeltsin. That's the attitude. That's the, those are the ethics. Uh, that's the psychology. So what kind of person is Putin? In a nutshell, he's the kind of person who would gladly, apparently gladly, take part in a plot to blow up buildings and murder hundreds of completely innocent, randomly chosen people in their sleep in order to gain power, and was a good enough actor to pretend to be outraged by what had happened, and to use that to launch a war in which yet untold thousands of people would be killed, the Second Chechen War. And we saw the same thing with the seizure of Crimea and the war in eastern Ukraine. What was at stake here was the desire to distract attention, the attention of the Russian people, from the very powerful example of the Euromaidan revolt. Because in, in the case of the Euromaidan revolt, a self-organizing, largely peaceful until the end, protest movement uh, succeeded in overthrowing a kleptocratic ruler. Well, that could be a blueprint for doing the same in the case of Russia. So the best way to, to avoid that was to, of course, redirect attention against an external enemy, in this case, uh, so-called Ukrainian Nazis, and use that as an excuse to seize Crimea and start a war in East, East, East Ukraine. 
the effect of the seizure of Crimea was phenomenal, really, in psychological terms. Uh, Putin's popularity rating reached 89%, something almost unheard of anywhere. People were euphoric over the idea that Russia is returning as a great power. And of course, they forgot the true meaning, or at least, or did not notice the true meaning of the Euromaidan revolt in Kyiv and the success of the Ukrainians in establishing, you know, an imperfect but nonetheless democratic system. The Crimean effect eventually wore off. By most analyses, uh, it lasted perhaps five years and genuinely boosted Putin's popularity and strengthened the regime. But it was wearing off, and all of the, all of the problems that are inherent to a regime that seeks to rule forever, corruption, lawlessness, were becoming worse and worse. And there was mounting discontent for various reasons inside Russia. And remember, Putin intends to rule forever. So there was an att- a built-in temptation to do something new. Uh, and I think what, what made it inevitable that it would take place was the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. After all, if we're ready to betray the Afghans, why not betray the Ukrainians? If, 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 if we were not willing to make even the slightest effort to defend those who were totally dependent on us and were ready to turn them over to totalitarian fanatics as we did in Afghanistan. And if we were a society in which neither the left nor the right, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats saw anything wrong with that, well, to someone like Putin, that, that's a signal that uh, he's got a free hand in, in, to do what he wants in, 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 uh, in Ukraine. And then I think plus the, the election of Joe Biden. Now, uh, Biden has done pretty well in a lot of respects. I mean, he has made a lot of the right decisions. I think that we could talk about the pace in which he's reacted. We could say that there's still things he could do, but he's done many things that needed to be done in the wake of the invasion. But uh, his long record of naivete and weakness in, in matters of foreign policy was definitely taken into account by Putin in trying to decide whether to, uh, whether to invade. All these factors convinced him that the, the time was right and that he could act with impunity. He also was getting bad intelligence about the state of the Ukrainian armed forces. A two-part question. Uh, you've spoken about an 89% popularity rating, and recently he is said to be more popular than ever. First part of the question, do you trust that number? Second, is there a silent majority of the Russian population that privately is not distracted by this war? Well, I don't think that the popularity now compares to what it was after the, uh, from what I've heard from the Levada polling organization, which is as close as anyone comes to uh, uh, being objective. <clears throat> the problem is you, uh, and even even after the seizure of Crimea, probably that figure was a little bit inflated, although it, it reflects the probably reflects the general tendency from everything we can we can see. The the thing to remember about Russian public opinion, however, is that it's extremely volatile. 
in the Putin when he became prime minister in 1999 had a popularity rating of two percent. Uh, of course, this was before the apartment bombings, before the Second Chechen War. It was assumed that no one connected with Yeltsin in any way, or Yeltsin himself, could have would have any chance to become president. But um, then after, uh, after the seizure of uh, Crimea, it supposedly had an 89% popularity rating. Well, no American popular, uh, politician would, would ever, no matter what the circumstances, demonstrate that kind of fluctuation. Uh, because, and the reason is simple, because here we have a whole set of issues uh, it, uh, around which people stake out their positions and uh, which they, they have some role in advocating or defending, even if only rather passively. In Russia, Russians are accustomed to being the subject of propagandistic campaigns. Uh, they're accustomed to a situation in which nothing they say makes any difference. Uh, so uh, they can be manipulated and also demanipulated. I mean, they've manipulated by state media, that's for sure, and that's been the case here. But they can be deprogrammed by the impact of events. We even have some examples, particularly the first Chechen war, where at first people were in favor of it, and after 18 months uh, or, or even 15 months of Chechen resistance, they were ready to pull the troops out of, out of Chechnya at any, at any price. Uh, now we're, we, we have a situation which people initially are in favor of the invasion under the impact of, 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 of propaganda by state, Russian state television, which is the dominant source of information. I mean, Is it also for fear of their own lives? No, I mean, I don't think that they necessarily fear their own lives, but they, 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 uh, the official position is always backed up by the threat to a certain degree of some kind of sanction if you disagree. Uh, you might have trouble at work. You might be ostracized. You might miss certain opportunities. Uh, it's not terroristic the way it was under Stalin. But nonetheless, people, people are cautious. Uh, you might, in, a, in certain situations, lose your job. We've got a, a lot of political aggression right now in the U.S. between people who don't agree with each other. But in Russia, it can be, it can be, it can be worse. Journalists, of course, as we know in Russia, uh, and there are a lot of them have been murdered. With the Ukraine invasion, is Mr. Putin stronger or more vulnerable? Well, he's clearly more vulnerable. He's clearly more vulnerable. If it had gone as if he had, as he imagined it, in his distorted uh, mind, if there had been a quick and decisive victory, uh, if the Ukrainians had greeted the Russians as liberators, uh, if there had been no serious Western sanctions, of course, his popularity would have probably exceeded that 89 percent that was registered after the seizure of, of Crimea. But nothing of the sort happened. Uh, instead, uh, the Russian forces uh, walked into uh, an inferno. They've done everything possible to conceal the scale of the deaths, but 
You know, there's only so much they can do. They're leaving. They're leaving bodies. Uh, they're not not claiming them, and many many of them have to be buried in common graves by the by the Ukrainians, unidentified. You just spoke of Mr. Putin's distorted mind. How is his mind distorted? Putin is someone who doesn't have any kind of moral limitation. In fact, most this is true of communist leaders generally. Their idea of morality is whatever uh, serves the in interests of the state, and they interpret the state interests to be their interest, whatever's in their interest. Especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, when there was no longer an ideology. In the past, Soviet leaders served their own interests, but they served it through an ideology. In other words, through the realization of some sort of ideological framework, we're going to create a classless society, we're going to you know, bring the blessings of communism to the whole world, uh, we're going to liberate the oppressed, etc., etc. Well, that ideological justification collapsed when the Soviet Union collapsed. What was left was the idea that, well, we're going to serve the state. Well, what are the interests of the state? Uh, they interpret those interests to be uh, the interests of the small group that is in, has control of the state. The Russians have a long history of underestimating enemies. Has Mr. Putin underestimated the Ukraine resistance? Well, he obviously has, yeah. They underestimated the Chechen resistance. They underestimated the Finnish resistance. They underestimated Nazi Germany, by the way. This is absolutely partially because of this is the braggadocio of, of, of Russian military leaders, which is also s somehow a tradition. But uh, <clears throat> it's the difficulty of telling the truth to a commander uh, or, or to a head of state who, who sees a war as an easy fix for all of his political problems. In a recent interview with veteran broadcast journalist Jenna Lee on her podcast, Smart Her News, you spoke of the inexperience of both the plight and inexperience of the young Russian soldiers in the Ukraine invasion. Can you expand on this characterization? The young soldiers who are being thrown in, we know that there, many of them are draftees, even though under the law in Russia, they can't be sent to a war zone. They're being forced to sign contracts or contracts are being signed for them. Their cell phones are taken away. They're isolated. And they're thrown into something with very little training and no, no real understanding of what they're supposed to do, why they're there. And that's why we're having these reports of defections. And those are going to get worse. The reason why I'm fairly optimistic, at least right now, about the outcome of the war is because you have uh, a demoralized army that doesn't know what it's fighting for, operating on foreign territory uh, against an enemy who, who they don't hate, uh, facing people who are defending their homeland, who know why they're fighting, and are, are ready to make sacrifices. All of the hardware in the world, all of the comparisons in the world of the uh, uh, military readiness uh, don't take, can't take into account or adequately quantify that psychological factor. Over to the state of the media in Russia with this invasion, mm -hmm. 
does free speech and a free media have a chance in a future Russia? Well, it absolutely does. It has a chance in a democratic Russia that might, might theoretically emerge. And uh, historically, wars, particularly failed wars, have been an impetus for change in Russia. This was the case of the Russo-Japanese War, which led to the creation of a parliament in Russia. It gave rise to the 1905 revolution and then, and then, and then the, the agreement of the Tsar uh, to allow uh, the existence of a, of a, of a parliament. So yes, of course, and in fact, Russia has considerable experience with free speech. Under Yeltsin, the the, the press was rel relatively free, although uh, capable of being influenced. Under Putin, uh, within certain limits, it was there was an element of press freedom and free speech, so long as it didn't threaten the regime. And so there are plenty of capable people and capable journalists in Russia who could become the basis of a, of a future democratic civil society. That's what we have to hope for. Veteran journalist and historian Mr. David Satter, thank you for joining us on the National Press Club Update One podcast. Thank you. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. <laughs>